I'm Garth Mullins, broadcasting from the edge of the Salish Sea to the known universe. On this episode, Nalo Hopkinson. It's not the apocalypse, it's just Tuesday. Do you want me to say my name is or I am? Oh, uh, whichever you feel, whichever you feel comfortable with. We have no, we have no uh, policy on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My name is Nalo Hopkinson. I am a science fiction author from the Caribbean and from Canada, currently living in Riverside, California. I spoke to Nalo about why common Hollywood dystopic visions of the future seem to resonate so much with our present and where the diversity is in those dire visions. The thing is, fiction is not about things going well. It's about things going wrong. So it's sort of built into the medium that it's going to start with something going wrong. Um, Having a good life is something we all want, but reading about a good life as fiction is not that much fun. So there's, there's one way in which you can forgive people for dwelling on the negative part. But um, I sort of think of um, particularly the, the, the fear of zombies, the fear of uh, basically the, the literally unwashed masses that overrun you is, is a um, kind of a guilt. Guilt is sort of what you feel when you're not going to do anything to change things. <laughs> so... Um, I think in one way those stories are saying, look, everything's awful, people are going to rise up and overrun us, and we really don't want to do the work they're doing, so it's just going to happen. Um, but I think also the notion of an apocalypse is, 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 is like the clean sweep. It's when you get to um, destroy everything that's wrong because you feel powerless to change it and hopefully start again. You're quite right, though, that we don't have too many stories about um, what that starting again looks like. We have quite a lot of them in science fiction, but they sort of stop at the initial part where you're, you know, you're mad maxing out and you're trying to find ways to replace gas and that kind of thing. Right. You know, uh, I I think of the clean sweep, too. And so I, I've watched a lot of the, especially the really, you know, like The Walking Dead and these things that are, have a huge mass audience right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, I personally I, I'm nearly blind so I never can see a representation of myself after the apocalypse you know and so I mm. don't know what happens to everybody with a you know a so-called disability or whatever and I wonder yes. do, and I, I can see you um, you know in, in some of the writing you've done and talks you've done sort of pondering the same thing other groups yes. of people yes other pr- groups of people I mean um yeah, what happens to disabled people after, you know, in, in the, the brave new world, a lot of science fiction is guilty of trying to cure us. Um, and um, more and more of us are standing up and saying, we're not sick, the world is. Um, fix the world, but don't necessarily fix us. And because um, I have my own, I've got um, a couple of cognitive disabilities and I've got a, 
uh, a chronic condition that, that makes um, fatigue and pain. Um, so it's something I'm beginning to wrestle more with too in my work is, is like, wouldn't a brave new world actually make room for us all to be different rather than trying to make us all the same? Um, it's, it's, it's a discourse that's beginning to happen and it goes back and forth. Um, but it, it's interesting to see it play out in fiction. I was watching, of all things, um, the second of the How to Train Your Dragon movie. So it's, a, it's an animated fantasy movie for kids. This is my home. We have fishing, hunting, and a charming view of the sunsets. The only problems are the pests. You see, most places have mice or mosquitoes. We have dragons. But it's set in a sort of a fantasy village in, in that looks a little bit like, you know, um, a fantasy past of Scotland. But these are people who, other than the fact that everybody has their own dragon and each dragon looks different, um, they are attacked often from the outside. So it's a, it's a village full of people with injuries. It's uh, people who've had to, the main character has his lower leg le missing and has replaced it with machinery and his dragon has part of its, um, its um, the tail wing missing and that's been replaced with a flag. It's lovely because it's, it's a village full of people who look like people do after they've lived a while, right? That's great. And, and it doesn't fix them because they're fine. They have adapted their world to suit them rather than the world trying to fix them. And it was just such a, a, a lovely moment to see there are old people and young people and fat people and thin people and nobody's trying to get you know, normal, whatever the hell normal is. Um, so I think it's beginning, we're beginning to see a sensibility around it. Uh, always want to see more. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to have to watch that. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's so nice to see a, a positive representation because, you know, I, I watch some of these things and I really have been for the show looking for some of the really mainstream representations that seem to be uh, touching this nerve. And you know, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't see people with disabilities, or sometimes people of color, or you know, the, and it it makes you think, what happened to all of us during that big chaotic moment? You know. Yes, I have a friend. His name is Ian Hageman, and and he was the one who started to um, make this something I was more aware of. Um, I met him at a, a science fiction convention, and and he said, you know, when I read science fiction set in the future um, where there are no people of color I wonder when the race war happened that, that uh, killed us all off and why has the writer not seen fit to mention something that huge <laughs> <laughs> and I thought damn yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's beginning to change a little in film and television but there's still so much tokenism uh, that, um, I mean, last week I was at a literary festival in Trinidad and Tobago. It's a five-year-old festival. And one of the things they did this year was to have a whole day devoted to um, science fiction and fantasy, which meant that they brought in a bunch of 
science fiction fantasy writers and, and of course there are some local ones and it was literally the first time we had all been together in one space talking about what we do from both, both a Caribbean literary perspective and a perspective of science fiction fantasy because usually what happens is people think well we've got one of them we don't need any more <laughs> so you still have this very frustrating tokenism where you can't see any representation of all that you are um, uh. where um, media and to some extent fiction is still so leery of um, I think they really don't get it they just don't understand what's there to represent um, I, I watched a few um, seasons of True Blood where it's explicitly talking about race. You know, you've got the human race and the vampire race. It's talking about racism. But there are maybe three black characters with speaking roles. And when they talk about racism, it's played as a joke because there's no actually human and human racism showed in the story. So it's just, you know, black people being weird and funny again. I'm the kind to sit up in You tried to flip the script on that one when you wrote uh, Brown Girl in the Ring, right? I, I, I remember reading that a few years back, and um, obviously the experience of people is different um, in the way that we're talking about. After, I guess, the economic collapse of Toronto, is that, um, is that how mm-hmm. you said it? Right. Yes, yes. Uh, and um, the then Prime Minister Mulroney was stealing my plot faster than I could write it. Um. Uh, Mr. Speaker of the Senate, Mr. Speaker of the House, uh, Cher Dear colleagues, dear friends. Today we welcome to our midst the Prime Minister of one of our mother countries, the leader of the Mother of Parliaments, and a truly outstanding spokesperson for the Western world, the Right Honourable Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of Great Britain. <laughs> I was very upset at him for so many reasons. Um, but part of what had happened was that I had been through Detroit, had taken a bus trip to East Lansing and had to go through Detroit, um, spend a few hours in um, the bus station on Mother's Day, as I recall, and seen, I got to see some of what was happening, what had happened to Detroit. I got to see how many uh, black people there were just, really, really struggling. I got to see how the the environment had been um, destroyed by economic downturn. And then I discovered that the, the name for that phenomenon was, um, economists call it the, the hole in the donut. It's essentially white flight. And so I realized how easy it would be to do that to Toronto and that the people who, they, they but that people, um, they talk about it as though there's nothing left when white flight happens. But of course, everything else is left. I, the, the people of any race who are either too poor to leave or too entrenched to leave or, you know, it's, this is their homes and God damn it, they're not going. Um, the, the people who um, are marginalized in one way or the other, they're all there. Everybody else is there and making a life. So, yes, I wanted to talk about what happened after the 
after the apocalypse when, you know, the people who are privileged leave and everybody else just sort of rolls up their sleeves and gets on with it. They just make a life the way that people do. Wherever they're people, we make culture. You know, part of the show we're using the, you know, the zombie apocalypse as a bit of a metaphor or a catchphrase to, to speak to people's very real anxieties about um, economic collapse, um, you know, like in the Rust Belt, like in Detroit, and and climate change and this sort of thing. It, and is that the setting that you, you had for Toronto there, just the, the regular functioning of the economy, um, you know, pulling back and downturning and, and throwing people onto the scrap heap as it does? Mm-hmm. Yes, and I, I think I, I wrote that book so many years ago, but I believe I created a couple of inciting incidents that took uh, something that was already um, uh, not good and not heading in a good way and, and um, sped it up. So I had a big accident uh, in the the subway system. I believe at that point the the uh, the little transit line that goes along the goes underground along beside the lake. Um, it had just been made, and whenever I took it, I could see that it was leaking. <laughs> <laughs> That's disconcerting. <laughs> it was quite disconcerting because you know there was Lake Ontario like feet away from you, and and you're seeing leaking. Um, they fixed it. They fixed it. It's all fine now. But it didn't take much, you know, as a science fiction writer, for me to imagine what would happen if that collapsed in um, and why that would happen and not days after I had thought it up and written it um, uh, the Go Transit had a big accident and they blamed the accident on um, the fact that the government had been pulling money from Go Transit and they weren't able to train um, their drivers as effectively as they liked so that kind of thing can sort of it's like turning a key it's like turning a key in the ignition the kind of thing that happens in Baltimore when people say look enough it's like one it, it's the um the last straw it's like enough killing our black men enough you know and people start to respond in Ferguson in the suburbs of St. Louis Missouri protesters are continuing to come out onto the street calling for justice in the case of the killing of 18 year old unarmed Michael Brown um, and what we tend to want to do as a society is to blame the people who are responding so in Baltimore it's not the apocalypse now it's been the apocalypse for years, and people are trying yes. to put an end to it. Yes, exactly. And being blamed for, you know, being angry, being blamed for um, uh, acting in, in, in acting out when in fact they have been acting, been being acted out upon for centuries. So yes, it, it's some people, it, it's, it's not even the apocalypse, it's just Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, at the beginning of our conversation, um, you know, you talked about the the fear of the the unwashed zombie hordes overwhelming people. You know, and I, I lo- looking at those representations in film, you can see how the how Hollywood takes the idea of the zombie and and you know sort of appropriates it and writes it up for the whatever social anxiety there is of the time. You know, but in Brown Girl, you are taking it back 
to its real um, Caribbean roots. Can you can you tell us and tell people a little bit about what a zombie actually is, not the popular stereotype or popular idea? Mm-hmm. First of all, zombies are not um, undead. They are very much alive. Um, they do exist. Uh, if anybody were to Google the name Clairvius Narcisse, um, he was one of the first documented um, zombified people. And what happens, as near as we can tell, um, Canadian scientist Wade Davis went to Haiti and, and was able to, to learn some of this, is um, it would happen when you got somebody angry. I think with Clairvius, it was his brother. They had some kind of property dispute. So you'd go to a bokor, so you go to an herbalist um, uh, who manages to get you to either drink or somehow ingest um, a substance that's similar to the poison in fugu fish. It, par- it paralyzes you, um, but you're still awake and aware. And then the person, you know, comes down with these symptoms, goes to hospital, apparently dies. It still happens now that, that the poison from, from uh, fugu fish is so effective at paralyzing any of your outward signs of metabolism that you appear to be dead. So they're buried, which, you know, cannot be fun when you're awake and aware and able to tell anyone. It must no be doubt. horrible. Um, and then you are dug up a little bit later and there's a ritual of beating and, uh, and then you're given another drug that suppresses your will. And that puts you into a fugue state in which you're very suggestible. So you become essentially a slave. Um, and what happened with Clairvius is that the man who had done this to him, not his brother, but the man who had administered the poisons, um, died. So he was no longer getting the drug. Um, and he came to and was able to just walk away from the situation he was in. Uh, there are other documented cases of this happening, and even one I read this morning that was even more horrible, where the man had come to enough to be able to whisper to the people taking him to be buried, um, brothers, I'm not dead. And they were getting paid to bury him, so they killed him. <laughs> um, yeah. And then his family saw the knife marks and figured out what had happened. So uh, zombification, what Wade Davis discovered when he went to Haiti to try to learn about zombification is that people aren't, weren't afraid of, uh, of zombies because zombies don't attack you. They were afraid of being made into zombies. Um, so I believe when, when Romero kind of appropriated this, he actually kept some of that um, idea of the metaphor of being made into unwilling workers um, and then sort of updated. It, it, it's like every generation takes a new, does a new take on the zombies. He was the one who did zombies in the mall, yes? Yeah, so that's right. <laughs> so, it's consumers. So you have, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You have this, this metaphor of, of what happens to us as consumers where you are sort of shambling from one shop to the other buying things that you didn't know you needed until somebody waved it in front of you. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. Um, where uh, uh, a ritual like um, Christmas, which is supposed to be this celebration of, of generosity and hope, becomes this oh my god, have I, me- have I remembered to get 
the perfect gift for you know my aunt um have i spent enough money on trees and plum puddings and uh, and you lose the, the spirit of it so that's a type of zombification as well um so i think every age does reinvent it now we have the whole contagion metaphor where uh, being a zombie is something you catch when you know a zombie bites you or scratches you uh, and now they move really fast <laughs> yeah. I, I noticed that just after 9-11 they really sped up yes exactly they're climbing tall buildings and tearing them down yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's interesting to me about uh, world war z which i also haven't seen because these things terrify me Films that have a dystopic view of the future terrify you? Yes, they do. Right. Uh, well, not so much dystopic. I could watch The Hunger Games, but, but things that have, you know, creatures jumping out at you out of nowhere, yeah. I, I, can't, I can't deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> People think that's hilarious, given what I write, but, you know, you write the thing that scares you. Yeah, for sure, yeah. So... Um, is the apocalypse coming? Are we on the edge of it? Or is it just Tuesday? Well, here's the thing. I mean, when you read writings from the dawn of when human beings first began to write, we've been saying, oh, my God, the apocalypse is coming. It's all over. We're so horrible. We've ruined it. I think we're always afraid of the apocalypse. We've so far managed to kind of spread the effect out. And I have a certain amount of um, optimism about humanity because we've pulled ourselves back from certain brinks so often. Um, when the Berlin Wall came down, when um, I, I was a child of, of the, um, the age of the, you know, being afraid constantly that someone was going to push the button and we were going to blow ourselves to smithereens. There was a turtle by the name of we still might, but it's no longer the clear and present fear it was. We've, we've put some systems in place that make it a little bit less likely. On the other hand, we keep hurting each other large scale and ignoring it. Uh, so I think it's not the, the I think the, the, the whole, the apocalypse coming thing is our recognition that at some level, um, we do a whole lot of damage. We do a whole lot of damage to the earth and to each other. And we keep thinking there's a payback and there may well be a payback. Um, but I think the cure is to start doing things about it. And I think human beings do. Not often enough, not thoroughly enough. Too many people are still dying. Um, too much of the earth is dying. But it's not inevitable. 
I don't believe it's inevit it's inevitable. Well, thanks very much for uh, for taking some time with us today. It was really great to meet you on the on the phone here on the on the wire. <laughs> it's good to meet you too. Okay. Well, take care. All right. Thanks for asking me. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye bye. You have been listening to science fiction writer Nell Hopkinson on East Van Calling. My thanks to KUCR at University of California, Riverside, and CBC Vancouver for making studio time available. As always, thanks to Lisa Hale for producing. Also, thanks to Jacob Dryden for the score. Part of this interview appears on our CBC Radio 1 Ideas documentary, The Coming Zombie Apocalypse. Listen to the whole program at cbc.ca slash ideas. The East Van Calling podcast is on iTunes. Please subscribe, review, and share. I'm Garth Mullins. Visit me at garthmullins.com. <laughs>